any reasonably sane human being were to ask themselves, what is truly important? You can't help but admit that what's truly important is invisible. It's nothing visible. There is no thing. There are no things, ultimately, that really matter. Apart from, you know, basic sustenance and basic livelihood and shelter and things like that. Hello, and welcome to Episode 8 of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Today, we're having a conversation with Kabir Helminski, a Sufi sheikh and wise person who is the founder of the Threshold Society. Before meeting Kabir virtually for this interview, I got to know him through his books Living Presence and Holistic Islam. One of the things that comes over in Kabir's writing and also in this interview is the importance of the human heart. And he even suggests that we should move instead of cultivating something called mindfulness, we should move towards heartfulness. So please enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast, where we seek advice to help us lead wealthier lives and extend success to a wider community. And now, your hosts... Jonathan Dio and Terry Shower. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. I'm here today with uh, Sufi wise man Kabir Helminski. <laughs> um, and it's uh, really an honor for me to have uh, Kabir on the show with us today. I uh, actually got to know you a little bit through uh, your books, Holistic Islam and Living Presence. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. So welcome to the show, Kabir. Thank you, Terry. Thank you for inviting me. Great. So uh, I don't know if you want to just by way of introduction, sort of walk us through a little bit of uh, what you're doing at the moment and uh, just let us like and our audience get to know you a little bit. Okay. I am in love with the tradition of Sufism. Uh, my lineage traces back to Rumi. I've been a translator of Rumi and other Sufis for, for several decades now. So my interest really is how a teaching like Sufism can help us to develop spiritually, to mature emotionally, to understand reality, the truly real. And if I were to suggest one criterion for the, to, to measure our progress in human spiritual development i would say i would say something like increasing our capacity to love to love wisely you know that love of language and probing you know doing the deep dive into language and how we use it and how we develop a spiritual vocabulary in english today has an interest to me because english is kind of a not a very mature language for spirituality it's a great language, don't get me wrong. It's great for many things. It has uh, richness. It draws from so many sources. 
but because it hasn't, we haven't had a spiritual tradition, let alone a revelation that has come in the English language. Uh, it's for us really to develop a glossary, a practical glossary, so that we can begin to use English to talk about spiritual experience and metaphysics. By metaphysics, I mean the big questions. Um, so I, I think if I can maybe jump in with the first sort of specific question. So uh, one of the themes that motivates us to do this podcast, Jonathan and I, is the theme of true wealth. And I think we're both frustrated. Uh, Jonathan, you know, comes from a financial services background. I'm in the real estate industry. And I think we're both frustrated with the way that the world tends to financialize everything. So we financialize success. We financialize, you know, human relationships. And so we're kind of in, in this inquiry into what is true wealth. And so, you know, obviously there is, there's, you know, some kind of a, a material component to that. But if I were to throw you the question, how would you define true wealth? What might you say about that? Maybe I'm going to fall back on Rumi because he has, uh, he has written something that addresses this profoundly, I think. Well, imagine somebody has just transited from this earthly domain to the domain of eternal life and true being. So Rumi says, if a wealthy person brings a hundred sacks of gold, his whole portfolio, his equities, his cryptocurrencies, everything, God will only say, bring me the heart. If the heart is pleased with you, I am pleased with you. I don't pay attention to you. This is God speaking. I don't pay attention to you. I look to the heart. Bring it, poor soul, as a gift to my door. Its relation to you is also my relation to you. So Rumi is putting the heart at the center of all value. And the heart for us is, is not a vague sentimental term about our emotionality. No, it's just our foremost cognitive instrument because it's the heart that can the heart when it's awakened when it's healthy it's the heart that perceives true value any reasonably sane human being were to ask themselves what is truly important you can't help but admit that what's truly important is invisible it's nothing visible there is no thing there are no things ultimately that really matter apart from, you know, basic sustenance and basic livelihood and shelter and things like that. So those invisible things that are so precious to us are things like friendship, love, empathy, forgiveness. And I could go, go on. Intangible idea of integrity. What if you could get whatever you wanted? You could manipulate your way into, you know, controlling your environment, controlling people, and satisfying all your desires, but you didn't have integrity. What would it all amount to? Purpose might religion serve? And I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt when you say religion, that you mean something truly spiritual. So we are here in this world as a soul-developing project, we are here in this world, I could say, one could say, that, and here's an amazing proposition, 
and Rumi is great evidence of this. Rumi, I think, had one real wish in all the approximately 45,000 lines of poetry that he gifted to the world. He wanted us to know the true dimensions of divine beauty, generosity, intelligence, and love. Now, I don't care if, if you're atheist, agnostic, evangelical, fundamentalist, whatever. What is sacred to you? What do you hold sacred? If you hold nothing sacred, I pity you, not you, such people. The true dimensions of true beauty, the generosity of life, the intelligence of life, and the love that human beings are capable of experiencing. What if we make that our focus, make those things our fo focus to the best of our ability to realize those? Leave aside, you know, afterlives, dogmas, all that stuff. Just put all that aside. What kind of life would that result in? You, you speak a lot in, in your writings of your essential self, right? Not guaranteed by birth culture, um, not the conditioning we receive, not the roles we play. Is that what you're talking about? Is the stuff that underlies things? And then the question would be, how do we discover that? I'm not talking about some self in the sort of Advaita sense of self as a cosmic oneness. No, there is that. <laughs> we recognize that. But essential self is when we remove the veil of thought, remove the veils of desire and emotional reactions, etc. Even remove the veil to some extent of our sensory experience and come to that core of our being that is simply able to witness and but also it's more than witnessing because I would not propose that witnessing is some ultimate state of being or that witnessing even full-time witnessing is necessarily the most important goal. But let's say it's a tool. And with that witnessing, with that essential self that is capable through simple being to access this domain of qualities and to access all knowledge in a holographic fashion, because everything that is out there is in here. This is Neoplatonism. This is Sufism. This is all the great traditions. We say in Sufism, you know, um, you are the drop that contains the ocean. Mm -hmm. We would never say, be the drop that dissolves in the ocean. No, we, we are the, each of us is the drop that contains the ocean. So the essential self can know that. And how do we attain it? Well, in a myriad of ways, but I think at the core is a practice that involves non-identifying, or I would say stepping back from thoughts, you know, emotional content. Mindfulness, one might say. Mindfulness, and could we even go a step further? Is Might there be something called heartfulness? Yeah. And by heartfulness, again, because mindfulness, I think that mindfulness needs to be, if we stay with the term, if we were teachers of mindfulness, I, we would try to move people toward the mind that's here. <laughs> yeah, right. Not, not the right. mind that's here. Not the brain. Right, right. Not the brain. Not the brain. And that we're not talking about some merely mental experience. Right, right. It's more than a mental experience. It's a purity of awareness. Yeah. What was that? It's a purity of awareness. 
It's a purity of awareness, but it's also a qualitative awareness. If that awareness doesn't actually melt you in love, is it complete? Or is it just awareness? Is awareness the ultimate goal? I mean, is pure, I mean, I know th these are very nuanced discussions and I can, in a way, sort of anticipate many arguments going in different directions. But let me say something about awareness. Let's not make the mistake with awareness of thinking that if one aspirin cures my headache, 10 aspirin will bring me enlightenment, okay? So yes, awareness is always, you know, uh, a tool. Yep. And it's a tool, uh, it's an innate function of our humanity. And it's part of everything that will be accomplished, except I prefer the word presence. It's to me, it's a little fuller, you know, it's a little bit, um, it sort of encompasses more and just feels a little differently to me. So I would say that everything that a human being can attain and would aspire to attain will, will be attained through presence, but there is depth to it. There is, and it's a qualitative depth. And it's not moving in the direction of abstraction. It's not moving in the direction of some impersonal enlightenment and one of complete equanimity when nothing's ever going to bother me because I am completely aware. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think one, of the, one of the great things I noticed in, in reading your book, uh, the most recent book, uh, Living Presence, was uh, the similarity with Buddhism. And one of the struggles, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the tenets is you have awakening awareness with compassion. And you use the word compassion many, many times. Uh, but so operating in the world, right? Um, we talk about internal and external conditions, you know, internal, external things, external markers might be material, might be hierarchical, might be social context. Um, some of those internal conditions might be things like mindset or um, personal drive or awareness or maybe meaning. So given that we live in the world, and these are wonderful conversations, but given that we live in the world, how do we balance these two things? By not being too invested in the world. Mm by not being overly attached to it. Um, and I mean, here again, too, we are assuming that we are practicing something having to do with the levels of consciousness. I believe it's the, the movement of consciousness from the sleep state, from the state of obsession to the state of witnessing that where we get some leverage on the compulsions of our ego, mm -hmm. that consciousness itself will help us <clears throat> to not only disengage, but transform aspects of our ego, and that it will also naturally move us in the direction of love mm -hmm. as we strip away, you know, our complaints, our judgments, etc., just by seeing them and seeing how stupid they are. Uh, you know, then we sort of, we, we go to love naturally. It's not as if, you know, because it is the very substance of everything. Yeah. And I mean, you know, what uh, kind of strikes me, like as I, we were preparing the, 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 the questions for this, and I kind of, you know, I read Living Presence again. Um, and it occurred to me, you know, Jonathan, so much of the, I think what frustrates us with our industries is this compulsive, 
that there's this level of compulsion behind things. And, you know, when I talk, I talk often about the bank account Olympics. I think there's a level of compulsion behind the bank account Olympics, which maybe it's easy, you know, materialism is kind of easy to uh, point at. But I think there's another kind of a compulsion, which is, you know, we're very success and achievement focused. And, you know, if I like look maybe, you know, at myself with with the things that I've been very attached to, like there's been moments in my life when I've been felt very compelled that like success or achievement is the meaning of life. And I think that that that's, you know, maybe one of those traps that we, you know, we fall into today. Yes, yes. Uh, You know, great beings and prophets have have come and sometimes advised us, you know, very clearly about these things. My own tradition, which is Islamic Sufism, is very integrated with life. It's, yes, there are some Sufis who, by a particular destiny, may be far removed from from everyday life. But our models are have been people like Prophet Muhammad, who was married, who was a trader, who was a businessman, uh, he was all these things. He did everything that a human being could do in life. And Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, God loves those who work and profit by their work. So we have no shame about that. God loves those who work and profit by their work. The son of Adam, and we are all sons and daughters of Adam. That's how we describe humanity or how the Quran describes humanity, oh, oh, child of Adam, you boast my wealth, my wealth, my wealth, oh, child of Adam, have you truly earned any wealth except what you ate and consumed, or put on and wore out, or spent in charity so that it remained? So he's saying everything is going to wear out, it's going to be consumed, except what we give in charity. And this is profound. And in fact, there's Muslims are uh, really enjoined to give two, roughly two and a half percent of their wealth in charity each year. I mean, this is what Elizabeth Warren, I think, is also proposing. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Similarity there. <laughs> happens to be the same percentage. So and the point of that, it's called zakat. And zakat means that which purifies. So if you give this percentage of your own wealth, which you have every right to, but that 2.5% purifies the other 97.5%. Interesting. That's, that's uh, you know, there's, a, there's an idea in uh, Buddhism, um, I think it's dana, where it's, you know, you give you give just beyond the level of your comfort as a training as a self development not as a not as a i'm better here i'm giving this to you look how good i am it's as a training um, how do you train yourself to give more um, and that's that's part of the conversation that's missing i think in the states is the benefits of giving um, well all uh, so many of the practices of religion would be better viewed as training for the ego and soul rather than as ways to earn heaven and avoid condemnation of hell. Yeah. Yeah. So 
I'm, I'm curious if um, we talk, we talk about giving, there's a lot of people that have, is there, is there a right way? Cause there's, this is, you know, deep in our culture. Is there a right, right way to pursue wealth that you then would give from? And if you, you know, if you have wealth, is there a right way to be in the world, obviously giving two and a half percent, but is there a, a more than that to having wealth? Yeah, this is so important and it's, it's very practical. The, I believe that the <clears throat> Quranic dictates for economy and, and current money would resolve so many of the problems we have in the world today that are problems of a, a corrupt finan financial system that is, is inherently corrupt, in it, aside from the corruption that's practiced through it, uh, the, as you mentioned, the financialization, the monetization of everything, and the earning of, the earning of wealth through these games that people play essentially it's a big you know gambling casino mm. and that has destroyed america is destroying america we've turned into a big casino nothing productive is being done so yes there is i would say a godly economy a sacred economy a possibility of a sacred economy uh, i learned from a very wealthy person in saudi arabia who uh, said, now this is somebody who was a, really a billionaire, and he said, you know, I can't just go and and put my money, you know, in in just anything. I have to find partners to invest with. So, earning a sort of passive income is considered. Haram, meaning it's forbidden, forbidden because <clears throat> when this is ex you know extended across societies, it results in exactly the situation we have today, which is a financial elite essentially enslaving the rest of humanity. Uh, now this is not capitalism, this is not good business. This is it's capitalism. If by capitalism we mean capital uh, if we allow capital to govern our lives then it will consume us the dollar will spend us we won't spend the dollar yep. this is what's happening let's say you invent something let's say it's a fast food operation that's going to kill everybody who eats there but it's highly profitable and efficient and it puts out of business most other forms of of nourishment you know i mean this is a model this is a metaphor too for the world economy today because things are profitable in dollar terms yet destructive to our humanness to our health to the environment that is haram that is forbidden yeah not by islam but by reality reality forbids us we're not going to be able to continue along this path are we Right, we get we get we get to a point, and then reality pushes back. And then I think a lot of that. I mean, we see this portrayed in the United States in the political conversation, and it's 
while it is interesting, it's often, it's the conversation that we have to have spiritually and it's, it's um, abducted by politicians with self-interest. And that sort of gets, you know, it gets my goat a lot. I want to listen. I want to say, yeah, yeah, this is right. You know, Elizabeth Warren, this is right. And it's also packed with other stuff. And that, that starts to get, at least in the United States, that starts to get kind of ugly. Very ugly. Yeah. yeah. So there are basic rules for conducting ourselves in business or trade. Uh, and that is to be honest not to profit by being dishonest. Um, these things are well known. They were well delineated in our tradition. They've been talked about clearly for 14 centuries yep. by people who are in business. Yep. And in fact, uh, well, I think one of the, I've read from many sources that one of the reasons why Islam spread so widely into Asia and especially Southeast Asia and the uh, Indonesian archipelago is that traders, Muslim traders, and they governed trade for many centuries, uh, much more than Europe did, but they had fastidious principles of fairness, honesty, and they were known for this and they became an example. And that's why you find today, you know, uh, even today, you find mosques all along the coast of Bali. Right. You know? It's, um, it, I mean, it's an interesting context because I think religion generally has done that, has tried to bring, well, just simplify it, call it ethics in business. I mean, mm -hmm. it's way more than that, but let, you know, make it simple. And I remember this is me in probably uh, fifth grade going to church. Um, I was at a Lutheran church, you know, not naming names, but I, I sat in church and I looked around me and I saw all these people that I see every day at school, uh, families that I see, you know, doing business. Uh, my, you know, and I know the stories my dad told me. And I, I just looked around and saw hypocrites everywhere. People that show up on Sunday to, you know, profess their loyalty to a creed and then go back to work on Monday and don't live that creed. And that, you know, we signal that we believe that we do things. How do we actually bring that back to reality? The lessons my dad taught me about business, I don't think those are the lessons that are taught anymore. I think that the lessons are taught are maximizing profit, are, you know, how do we expand our market? How do we, you know, get into new places, create new things and, and profit, profit, profit. And I think that's, you know, Terry and I talk about that's the financialization. That's where everything has a monetary value and that's all that matters. That's the penultimate. And that's a, that's a huge underlying problem globally, culturally, you name it, how do we, what are steps we can take to come back? Oh, that's, a, that's a big question. I'm sorry. <laughs> it wasn't on your list. <laughs> I know there are people in business schools who are concerned with this, yep. but the predominant culture, postmodern culture, is one that recognizes no true values. Values are considered subjective, relative, and everything is viewed I mean, all of life is viewed as one power center, you know, uh, exerting itself upon another power center. And all human relationships are viewed as struggles of power and dominance and so forth. And you would think that would lead, I mean, it sounds just, you think that would lead somewhere. 
uh, it almost sounds like it is ethical, but in fact, it has reduced everything, including gender relations, um, race relations, business relations, to made everything suspect, suspected of being just another, you know, center of power, seeking to dominate another. So I don't really, you know, I don't have an answer to this other than we need moral, generous, charitable human beings. We need examples and we, we, and they will demonstrate by the happiness of their lives, by the balance and coherence in their lives, that this is a good way to live. Now we are people who come have some contact with great sacred traditions, whatever it may be, Buddhism, Sufism, whatever. Um, but how can we make these values intelligible to people who are not rooted in those traditions? You know, that's, I like the word sacred because it begins to focus us on something of value and what is truly of value. And that's why I also like to say, everything that really matters is invisible. If people could reflect on that, then they would see the uh, inanity of, you know, chasing the illusions. Uh, they're chasing and seeking to dominate and control and exploit others and understand the incoherence that that leads to. I wonder if I can just like kind of pull on something that's maybe like uh, maybe a bit underneath this discussion. Um, one of the themes that comes up a lot in your writing is this difference between, you know, on the one hand, love and connection, and then on the other hand, fear and separation. Um, and I wonder uh, if you could maybe just speak to us a little bit about how you see that animating some of the stuff around us. I mean, like if we practice our economic lives from a spirit of like, you know, love and harmony on the one side or fear and lack on the other, that creates two different things. If we practice political discourse with, like you said, looking, you know, with love and saying, well, what do you really want? Or what are you really trying to say to somebody who's sitting on the other side of some divide or to be like, I have to protect my, you know, my castle and my ideological position at all costs. It's, it's almost as if the spirit that's animating what I'm doing, it might be the same activity, but the spirit that's animating it is different. Yes. Yes. Well, if, for people who have at least a certain minimum amount of self-awareness and emotional maturity, you know, we can begin to have conversations with people and just, as I said before, try to understand what it is they truly want and what they truly value and explore that with them and maybe be able to share what we truly value and find out that there is some common ground and respect each other, even if we might have different, imagine different ways of attaining those goals. But there at least we have an honest conversation that is much different than the kind of blaming and shaming that's going on now. In so many areas today, we cannot have a rational discourse about so many of the most important subjects. Add to that the censorship that's going on, 
in social media. And again, there's a rash, I believe there's a rational discourse that we're not able to have now. One day we'll have to have it about what we've just been through. Right now we can't have it. So I, I know we're getting we're getting close to wrap. What I'd like to do, if if we, if there's a way to do this, is to wrap on a positive note. Thank you. <laughs> what, what, what do you what do you see as a step that we can take that we can do to enable this? I mean, there seems to be some simple things. I think. Assume goodwill of other human beings. Assume even goodwill of other countries, rather than demonizing them rather than assume that they're out to get us. Yeah. I know some people would consider this a, a very naive approach to politics. I'm not advocating being naive. I'm not advocating completely letting down our defenses, but let's have these conversations about human rights, about honesty, about transparency. That's a big one. I'm not talking at the, in the global affairs level, and practicing goodwill, wishing good to humanity, even wishing good to our, our enemies. There's a, a beautiful practice, uh, you, maybe you've heard of it already, but it's an incredibly powerful spiritual practice that I think works on a personal, interpersonal level, and yet is absolutely profound. And it's in Hawaiian, it's called Ho'oponopono, have you heard of this? I think so. All right. So this describe is it. I'll describe it for our listeners. Okay, I'll describe it for your listeners. It it's called it means in Hawaiian making the good better. Now here's the way it works. And this has been demonstrated to actually accomplish miracles. It's been used in hospitals for the criminally insane with absolutely miraculous benefits. So here 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 it is. Every time I, I'm going to speak for myself, every time I notice fear, blame arising in me in relationship, let's say, to uh, another person, I say internally, I'm sorry, forgive me, thank you, I love you, I'm sorry, forgive me, thank you, I love you. You don't need to say it aloud, you don't need to say it to them. You need to do this work in the invisible domain. I love it. Thank you, Kabir. And this will literally transform. It will cut back all kinds of toxicities, and it will result in profound transformation and healing in intimate relation and in near relationships, and even, I believe, at the level of, of societies. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Thank you for, for letting me see this. I love you. Okay. That's, that's like definitely your positive note, Jonathan. <laughs> definitely the positive note. <laughs> um, so look, uh, Kabir, we're kind of running out of time, but I wanted to really thank you for uh, joining us today and taking this time to, you know, chat with us um, about the theme of, of true wealth and how we can import maybe a little bit more not mindfulness, but heartfulness into the things that we do. <laughs> um, and uh, if uh, anybody wants to either, you know, get in touch with you or learn more about what you do, what's the best way of doing that? Well, 
our website is called sufism.org, S-U-F-I-S-M.org. Uh, that's where you can see something about our work. And uh, there are a number of books available. Uh, Living Presence has become something of a classic. Another book is called The Knowing Heart. And then there's Holistic Islam. That's a little bit more specialized. And there's a lot of poetry of Rumi and others that we've translated. So that's where we can be found. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Kabir Helminski. I have to admit, in the week following the recording of this, I had some trouble summing up exactly what happened. But if I can leave you with one thought and one thing that really struck me, it is when Kabir says that everything important is invisible. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating and leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Jonathan at mindful.money, and you'll find Terry at terryshower.com. Their books, Mindful Money and Mindful Landlord, are available on Amazon. Look to the show notes for our guests' contact info and any links discussed in today's episode.